Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business podcast from the Business in Vancouver newspaper and from BIV.com. I'm Haley Wooden. On today's show, 75% of startups fail. Why? An entrepreneur and researcher's perspective on innovation and how to get it right. But before we get to that, two events coming up from our Business Excellence series I'd like to draw your attention to. The first is our Due Diligence and Valuation When Buying Expert Panel. The saying goes, the devil is in the details, and of course, for very good reason when you're buying a business. But what are the ingredients for success? Our expert panel on February 21st will lead you through these steps to guide your decision making. And maybe you've bought a business and are now looking to sell and get out and retire. Are you retirement ready? It's a particularly crucial question in British Columbia, where one third of the population is nearing the age of 50 and 17% has already achieved senior status. Well, with the help of our leading experts, BIV's Retirement Ready panel discussion will investigate how and when to retire and how to embrace what should be the triumphant years of a longer life. That takes place February 28th. Both events of our Business Excellence series take place at the Shangri-La Vancouver. You can find more information on those at BIV.com events. Whether you call yourself an entrepreneur or not, we've all had great ideas, you know, the kind that most certainly would make us millions of dollars if we just had the funding or the time or a promise of zero risk. The thing is, some of us try them out and unfortunately, most of us fail repeatedly. There are, however, some common pitfalls that can be avoided. Triggers and Barriers is a new book that explores innovation from a customer's perspective. And I'm joined on the line today by the author, Charles Plant, director of the Impact Center at the University of Toronto. Charles, good to have you back on the show. It's great to be here, as always. What inspired you to write this book? Well, you know, I I started gathering together all my thoughts a long time ago because I, as I described in the book, I went through a startup that totally bombed. And I said to myself, what on earth was it that made this thing totally bomb? Why? I mean, we came out with what we thought was a great idea with a group of experienced people and got nowhere. <clears throat> so as time went on, I just started figuring out what it was that had made it happen and uh, eventually put it down in the book. Tell us a bit about that idea, because in the book, you detail how it seemed almost foolproof. It was a no-brainer. There was a clear need, and you, you thought you had a winning idea. You, you think so, too. The, the, uh, it was started by uh, a friend and I, and we had both been CEOs of uh, tech companies before. And one of the problems that we both experienced was being able to control our strategic execution. I mean, we'd be, make these great plans, and then execution would always fall short. So we'd always been looking for ways to improve our ability to execute. And if you look at the Harvard Business Review, it goes through a a whole sorts of analysis saying the biggest problem in business today is execution. So here we figured we had a problem. We'd experienced it ourselves. And Harvard Business Review said it's the number one problem in the uh, business world. So why don't we develop some software to help solve that problem? So that's, that's what we did. And that's what ended up bombing. I mean, something totally logical met with absolute stony stares from companies. It was really amazing. So looking back today, why do you think it failed? Well, you know, and here's where we didn't understand the, the, the buying process properly. And the funny thing is, you know, I've got a background in marketing. You'd think I'd understand it. But you, when, you're, when you're blinded by your own ideas, 
you tend to think of your own ideas as the be all to end all and, and don't consider things from the client's point of view. So as I went back and looked at uh, what was going and what, why we didn't get anywhere, I went back and looked at it from the client's point of view instead of our point of view. From our point of view, it was totally logical. From the client's point of view, because of how they're structured and how they do business and how they you know, address problems and put budgets forth, it, it didn't meet any of their needs. And that's where things sort of fell off the rails. Mm. That can be tough if you think you have a brilliant idea and maybe friends also think that it's a brilliant idea. How do you really get past sort of that that fog of brilliance, if you will, and really connect with customers? Yeah, and, and in fact, never ask your mother whether you think you've got a good idea. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, it's like asking friends. They all, they all say, oh, yeah, it's a great idea because no one wants to tell you no. And and it's a difficult thing to do, and it it comes down to listening to customers. And you know, I I say and I say it all the time to people: if you listen very closely, your customers will tell you what business you're in. And uh, so it's a matter of being able to ask the right questions. You can't go out and say, um, you know, for instance, do you have a problem with strategy execution? Because everybody will say, yeah, we've got a problem with strategy execution. And you can't say, is this a good idea? Because everybody will say, oh, yeah, it's a good idea, because it doesn't cost them anything to say if something's a good idea. So they get to the point where nobody wants to say no. So not wanting to be negative, they'll tell you it's a good idea. And you'll go, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's the, yeah, yeah, great idea. But the questions you have to ask is, number one, who is responsible in your company for solving this problem? And number two, do they think they have a solution for it already? And number three, do they have a budget attached to that problem? Because if you don't have those three things, it means that while there might be an esoteric problem, it's not something that anybody wants to solve right now. And that's what the customer's perspective can tell you. And that's how you're understanding the, the nature of how they assign problems to people, how they reward people from solving those, for solving those problems, and how they attach budgets to them is where you've got to look from a corporate perspective. And pretty well the same thing exists in, a, in a consumer purchasing as well. Mm. We're all, of course, starved for time. Can it be difficult to actually connect with customers who are willing to set aside a few minutes and actually meaningfully answer these questions? Well, the funny thing is, if there's somebody out there who's looking for your solution, who's actively looking, has a budget, is going to get rewarded in the business or personally for getting it done, then you have absolutely no problem talking to customers. Mm. Whether they're individuals or corporations, they'll want to talk to you. In fact, while you're trying to find them, they're trying to find you because that's the real key is going out and finding markets where somebody's trying to find you. You know, you, know, you, you look at Uber and, and it's a great example. Have you seen much advertising for Uber? Not a lot. No, nobody needs to advertise <laughs> Uber because you know, people come down and they, they, they need to find a taxi or some way to get from A to B. And, you know, quite often it's difficult to get cabs. So they look for other solutions. So the best situation if you're starting a business is find something where somebody else is actually looking for your solution, actively trying to engage, because then you don't have to deal with it. Because your question was, how do you find time to get customers to talk to you? Well, if they're looking for a solution, they're going to find you. You don't have to find them. And they'll be willing to talk for sure. Fair enough. I will say to the point about Uber, we still don't have it here in Vancouver. So there is some advertising in the market. <laughs> They're waiting oh, to get in. you don't have Uber? I, I didn't realize that. We're still oh, the, the, last, the last major region in North America to not have Uber or Lyft. Isn't that nasty? Hmm. 
Yeah, if you talk to businesses, they're very unhappy about it. It's coming, we've heard, but that's a, that's a whole other argument for another day. I'm, yeah, exactly. Exactly, yeah. I'm curious, too, where ideas come from and how entrepreneurs should really qualify them and how early they should begin qualifying ideas. Because you talk about the eureka moment in the book, and you actually say it's a myth. Yeah, it, it really is. There aren't many things that are eureka moments and that you nail a, a solution. And, and I think Uber is a good example. I mean, they started out with something that was uh, um, limousine service and eventually ended up where they're going. So it, it's it's a journey. And, and your your first idea might just show that you're interested in something. And that's when you have to start doing your qualification. And it, it, it means you're going out there from the very first moment you've got an idea to find out if there's a market, how big that market is, and how much the market's willing to pay, and whether you've got a solution that can meet the needs of that market. It's a constant process that you're going to keep doing over and over again, as long as the company exists, because markets change and people change and competitors change. So you always have to be asking the same set of questions about, do you have something that meets market needs? Mm. It sounds like from an entrepreneur's perspective, you have to be really passionate about solving the issue and not as passionate or tied to the first idea you come up with. Yeah, you've got to be passionate about your customers mm-hmm. and, and bringing them some value and bringing them some benefit. Being, being passionate about a product or, or a, a service isn't the right way to speak. And it, it comes back to the customer perspective that I'm trying to bring out is try to see things through what your customers dealing with, how they're feeling, what what their challenges are, because that's where you're going to get the what you think are eureka moments. They're not. It's just active listening. It's actively involving yourself with your customers and living life in their shoes in order to become come out with some solution that meets their needs. In this case, is is the customer always right? Uh, the customer has the right to be wrong, but uh, <laughs> you know, if you think you're right and the customer's wrong, you're not going to get very far. Yeah. Because they have a way of saying no, and it's it's with their it's with their credit cards. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't want what you've got. They're not going to be paying anything. You'll you'll get stony stares and and silence, and that's their that's another part of listening closely. Is how many of those are you getting? To that point, how willing, generally speaking, are customers to to change, and at what? point in their own buying process, let's say, do they finally make that decision to, say, switch from one product to another? Well, customers are actually really reluctant to change. If you think, well, Haley, in your daily life, how many times a month do you buy a new product you've never bought before? Once or less than once, probably. And how many ads do you see for products in a month? Oh, I probably couldn't even count. (laughs) No, 100,000 or something like that? Yeah. So, so if you look at it, less than 0.001% of the time, you'll respond to, to uh, an entreaty to buy a new product. And this is what customers do all over the world. It's why you have to get bombarded with ads. Because what you've you got to realize that people try innovative things because something's changed in their life. Something is different, and that causes them to need to go and, and buy something. You're probably not in the market for a child car seat right now. No. But you know, when do you, when do you all of a sudden need a child car seat? Well, you only need one when you've got a child that has to come home from the hospital because they don't let you out of the hospital until you've got a child car seat. So, you know, there's a perfect example of a change in someone's life dictates a whole new buying practice. You're not buying diapers till you got a child, but I mean, diapers might be useful, but think of it in your own life as 
something triggers you to purchase something and it could be it could be fashion it could be uh, obsolescence it could be something's torn or broken and but that's when you start looking for solutions and that's when people who are trying to get you to innovate have to be sitting alongside you responding to your need to innovate at that point in time with technology with social media platforms and with the amount of data that's now being collected on people has it become easier for companies to connect with these trigger moments in people's lives? Yeah, that's a really good point because uh, that's a lot of what of what they're doing. They're, you're triggered by something and the first thing you're going to do is you're going to go on Google to say, you know, tell me something about this. And that's why advertisers are using cookies and, and, and things like that because then they know what you're interested in, they know what you're triggered by, and they are actually responding to your triggers. So it's much easier now to know where uh, where a customer is and what where they are in their buying journey by what they're doing online. When you've got a medium like TV, all you're doing is blaring at the customer, no idea what stage they're in, and so you just have to keep doing it. But it's much more effective when you can respond to a customer's um, inquiry. And you know what it's like. You know, you you make an inquiry on one platform, and then all of a sudden uh, on Go- on <laughs> Facebook or somewhere else, you're seeing ads for the thing you you're asking oh, yeah. for, and it's a little freaky. But, you know, that's advertisers doing your good job there. Yeah. And it can be, to be totally honest, it can be helpful sometimes. I try not to click on a lot of ads, but sometimes if it hits you at the right moment, it's very appealing and it actually is more helpful and less creepy. Totally. When I get irritated, it's if I've already bought the thing and then they keep giving me the ads. Yeah. I mean, they've they've got to find some way of figuring out that I don't need that anymore. But It's coming, hopefully. I don't know what that'll be. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Well, triggers is one half of the book title. The other is barriers. What are some of the biggest barriers that you outline in the book? Oh, geez, you know, um, you know, everybody's got a whole set of them, and the, and the great thing is now behavioral economists are going and, and discovering all sorts of new barriers all the time. But when, when you look at it, there's usually a learning barrier. If you're acquiring a new piece of electronics or something like that, there's some learning curve that you have to go through, and that prevents a lot of people from from going ahead and trying something new. They don't want to look stupid. They don't want to take the time. Other uh, other ones like the the sloth factor, people are lazy and, it, and it's difficult and time consuming to make decisions. So they try and avoid them. I think you've got great examples like Steve Jobs who wore the same uh, type of clothes every single day. And he did that for years and years because he didn't want to have to make another decision. And decisions take time and they take effort. Barack Obama did exactly the same thing with his suits and ties. He always wore the same thing so that you know he wouldn't be bothered trying to go through that decision. Then you get the bizarre ones, like uh, pe- people sort of form their own identities. For instance, I've never had a four-door car and I've never had a, an automatic. And mm. I'm looking for another car. And that's a real barrier because I see myself as a two-door standard car driver and i i so i identify with my car it's how i get some you know um value and and you know in my life and so for me to make that sort of a change is a very big barrier if you look at hoarders um the the principle of hoarders is that everything people own becomes part of them and so giving up something by changing to another supplier or changing to another product. It's very difficult for people because they have to change their identity in some way. And I guess that goes back then to the triggers. It maybe takes a significant event or moment in someone's life for them to really finally decide to change their behavior. 
Absolutely. My parents are going through that right now because I became ill a month ago and finally they have to start looking at retirement homes. And until then, there, there was no, absolutely no way they would consider a retirement home. But that health trigger all of a sudden switched and the light bulb went off and they are moving into a retirement home. So that's the major sort of thing in your life. And the bigger the trigger, the more barriers it will overcome, which is mm-hmm. why you're looking for big triggers when you're developing products looking for things that are major changes in people's life uh, that will allow will allow them to get over the barriers that exist. You mentioned your background in marketing and you used that great example of how we maybe see 100,000 or more ads in a given month, but make very few buying decisions based off of them. Do companies need to start to rethink their marketing strategies so that they can connect with consumers in more effective ways? Well, I don't think it's so much the marketing strategy that, that enables them to connect. I think they have to have a really, really strong product differential, like mm-hmm. amazingly strong. Your, your product has to be 10 times better than what exists there now if you want to bring a new innovative product in. And that's partially because of all the noise that's in the market. If you go back 50 years, you go back to a, a time when there might only be three products, good, better, and best in a market. It was easy, it was easy to differentiate between the products. There were very few channels of communication. There was advertising on TV and maybe magazine and and newspaper. So when you came to look for a product, uh, it was easy to tell which one you should buy. Nowadays, you go and the market is saturated with products and it's saturated with advertising. So you look from one to another and you can't tell the difference. Like, what's the difference between an Arcteryx and a North Face jacket? But you have no way of knowing. So... So because you love Patagonia, you like, I, I only buy Patagonia. I won't buy North Face and Arcteryx because well, that's one of my barriers. But besides that, unless somebody comes up with something that enables people to say right, see right away that it's 10 times better, then you're not going to get the response. Hmm. So Tesla, Fair for enough. instance, there, there is a car that is 10 times different. Right. It is in all sorts of different respects. It is substantially different from the competition. And now as you come along and more and more people come into the world of electric vehicles, it will be harder and harder for people to differentiate because they'll have to differentiate against Tesla, which owns the um, biggest mind share in it. Mm-hmm. We've had you on the show many times before to talk about some of the differences between Canadian and American entrepreneurs. And I'm curious, when it comes to bringing these differentiated products to market successfully, what would you say are some of the strengths of Canadian entrepreneurs and what are some of the weaknesses? Well, I'll have to think for a while about the strengths. Uh, (laughs) I hate to say that, but can you think of a major Canadian uh, consumer marketing company? No. Canada Goose? Yeah, there you go. Very good, very good. And you'll notice that their product is has that 10 times differential number one in luck and performance and they went in the marketplace lululemon did the same thing but for the most part we don't have that because as a small country it's easier to compete in canada you don't have to be 10 times different to compete in canada you can be just a bit different and there because there aren't there aren't that many products that are canadian made when you're competing against the u.s though you know, it's a, it's a different game and you have to look at them and see their range of choices and engineer something that would be overkill in Canada, but that just meets the, the minimum standard in the U.S. And that's mm-hmm. some of the challenge that we've got, particularly in consumer marketing. 
there are so many lessons in your book, but if there's one or two things you hope Canadian entrepreneurs take away from reading it, what would they be? I, I think the biggest is listening to customers. Put you putting yourself in the in the mind and in the body and in the feelings of a customer to be able to understand what they're going through and what their perspective's going to be. You know, it's it's almost the need for an elegant naysayer or 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 someone who can uh, be a devil's advocate when you're looking at doing something innovative and and appreciating what that customer is going through, not just presuming that you've got the right answer. And I must say, you actually did a very good job of reading this book. I'm uh, quite impressed because <laughs> you're, you're, you're quite far down and, and uh, I, Thank I you. hope you enjoyed it. <laughs> Yeah, it's a it's a very interesting book. And on that point, where can anyone go and, and find the book if they want to find it? Right now, there's only one place. It's on Amazon. And it's it's either if you've got Kindle Unlimited, you can get it for free. Or it's uh, in Amazon Canada. I think it's about just under 10 bucks. Uh, and it's only available as an ebook. We'll be bringing out the paperback version in the next uh, month or so. Great. Charles, as always, thanks so much for coming on the show. It was great to talk to you. Thanks for asking me all these great questions. Charles Plan is the director of the Impact Center at the University of Toronto. His new book is called Triggers and Barriers, A Customer Perspective on Innovation. That's it for our show. Thanks for listening to BIV Today. You can get notified of new episodes by subscribing to us on iTunes and Stitcher. You can find more episodes, read, watch, listen to more business news as well at BIV.com. I'm Haley Wooden. Have a great weekend.